When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop Series 2, a podcast about the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. On July 7, 1987, a 43-year-old lieutenant colonel, Oliver North, raised his right hand before a select committee investigating the Iran-Contra affair. And the colonel promised to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The first big truth he told was that he was a liar. I will tell you right now, counsel, and all the members here gathered, that I misled the Congress. The hearing, an attempt to get to the truth of the matter, what did President Ronald Reagan know? Was there a cover-up? Were laws broken? Turned into an epistemological and theoretical whir around the mulberry bush about the nature of truth. Truth is just a social construct, man. Your narrative is your narrative, and my narrative is my narrative. Well, it didn't get that bad, but it almost did. And in the process, Oliver North became a sorting device. In the march to the partisan splits we see today, like Alger Hiss, John Dean, Anita Hill, he was a star of congressional testimony who held the country transfixed and deepened the country's partisan divisions. To conservatives, North was a hero, working around the bureaucracy to free American hostages and fund the Contras in the global fight against communism. If he did something wrong, he was a hero in error. And loyal, I should say, to a revered President Ronald Reagan, the GOP icon, too. His critics, North was a rogue ideologue with delusions of grandeur who had circumvented Congress and the White House and run a separate government within the executive branch. As the Brown University website devoted to the Iran-Contra affair points out at the start, the headline on the front of the Wall Street Journal the day of North's testimony was, Which Colonel North Will Tell His Story to the Nation? The villain who deceived or hero who obeyed. Readers of the Washingtonian magazine had voted Colonel Oliver North the top villain of the year and the biggest hero. The whole around Contra business started off like a Tom Clancy novel. Those muscular anti-communist doorstoppers that were very popular in the 1980s. Many of the Clancy page-turners had at their heart a rule-breaking, risk-taking, red-blooded American whose priorities were usually aligned directly with the flag. These protagonists achieve greatness by vaulting over the tissue-thin resistance of rule-bound beta males gurgling through the bureaucracy, and these heroes broke through the Lilliputian binds of lesser, more timid men. If this episode were made into a movie, it might start on October 5, 1986, when a Nicaraguan soldier downed an American plane carrying arms to Contra guerrillas fighting the communist regime in Nicaragua. American Eugene Hassenfuss survived the crash and admitted that the plane had been dropping weapons and other supplies. This was against U.S. policy. 
The White House spokesman and CIA director denied the reports. There would be a lot of denying going around to reports that would ultimately turn out to be true. A month later, there was another story, seemingly unconnected, except that it also presented an opportunity for White House aides to set the pants ablazing with untruths. Reports surfaced that the Reagan administration had been covertly selling arms to Iran, a sworn enemy of the United States and a state sponsor of terrorism. The arms were offered in exchange for help freeing American hostages in Beirut, Lebanon. White House officials denied the account. The profits from the arms sales to Iran, it turned out, were going to support the Contras. What emerged became known as the Iran-Contra scandal. It would become a clash between parties, ideologies, and between two branches of government, the White House and Congress. The entrepreneurial mind who found a way to rob Peter to pay Paul and in the process break two sets of laws was highly decorated Marine Oliver North, a staffer on the National Security Council. Before we can get to the actual North hearings in July of 1987, we have to step back and explain the Iran-Contra affair a little bit more. In the late summer of 1985, so two years before North shows up in the committee hearing room, members of Ronald Reagan's national security staff collaborated with the Israelis and some shadowy arms dealers and mercenaries and the Iranians to sell weapons to Iran. The weapons were given in the expectation they'd help these hostages get freed from Lebanon. The adventure broke with the stated policy of the administration and specific law, the Arms Export Control Act. The sales involved anti-tank missiles and ground-to-air missiles, the tow and hawk missiles. Iran needed them because they were at war with Iraq. Iran overpaid and the proceeds were used to fund the Contras, rebels in Nicaragua fighting to overthrow the Sandinista government. This also was illegal because Congress had prohibited lethal aid uh, from going to the Contras. An important sub-theme to our story is the ongoing conflict, which we've mentioned before and we'll mention many times, between Congress and the president over the management of foreign affairs. The Democrats controlled Congress and sought to pin back the Republican President Ronald Reagan. The most notable way in which they did this, at least for the purposes of our story, was the Boland Amendment, named after Democratic Congressman Edward Boland of Massachusetts. It blocked the CIA and the Department of Defense from using funds to overthrow the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Reagan had been sending support to the Contras there, and the amendment passed 411 to 0 and was signed by the president. It hemmed him in, but he didn't want to be hemmed in, and the administration ignored the the amendment. They did so by using the National Security Council as the conduit for deliveries of covert aid. Why did they break the law? Morality and the domino theory. Reagan had said the Contras in Nicaragua were, quote, the moral equivalent of the Founding Fathers. In explaining his theory about the communist advance in Central America, he put it this way. The Soviets, Cubans, and other elements of international terrorism— in Central America would ultimately undermine Mexico and threaten the United States. This was not too drastically different than Eisenhower's domino theory from more than 30 years earlier. Little advances in Indochina, Eisenhower had argued, would lead to a red tide. A constrained president finds his own way. We've talked about that a lot, and we'll keep talking about it. When a president does this, his supporters see it as adventuresome, risk-taking, gung-ho righteousness in the face of partisan opposition and the limitations of the American system. Opponents see it as an abuse of power. In 1984, after the first Boland Amendment, the NSA, led at the, the time by Bud McFarland, whose aide was Oliver North, secured secret aid for the Contras from the Saudi government. Reagan approved of this and said to his aides, keep this quiet. 
The NSC also enlisted Manuel Noriega, who was the drug trafficking dictator of Panama. The administration also secretly mined the Nicaraguan harbors, and they got busted and then lied about it. When the House heard that they'd lied about it, namely the CIA director had lied about it, they passed a second Bolin Amendment, which barred even non-military American support for the Contras. North and others were undeterred. They knew that Reagan wanted, and they assured themselves that the Boland Amendment didn't apply to them. So just to recap, staffers in the White House are going around congressional hurdles to achieve the president's goal of fighting communists in Central America. The familiarity with going off the books for the right reasons was therefore entrenched now in the Reagan White House. I'll add one other element here that comes from Lou Cannon's Reagan biography. Cannon says there was a diminished sense of political accountability after Reagan's landslide election victory in 1984. So as a result, after that victory, everybody at the White House thought they could just do no wrong and that the country was behind them. So there's also a second motivator now to the Iran-Contra scandal. First motivator being stop the communists in Nicaragua, in Central America. Now, what about Lebanon? Well, this is the action hero version of the presidency. The president couldn't stop thinking about those hostages. And so he wanted to get his national security staff to come up with a solution to that problem. Now, the president had publicly declared that the United States would never deal with terrorists. Quote, we make no concessions, we make no deals, the president said in June of 1985. But in late 1985, he encouraged those national security advisors to embark on a secret arms sale to Iran, which is in the middle of this war with Iraq. And these sales were arranged by an exiled Iranian businessman. And the way that they did it was in order to cover it, cover the American involvement anyway, it was funded through Israel. So there were seven hostages when the United States started selling arms to Iran, and a secondary story used to sell this policy internally and then later externally was the idea that the arms would go to moderates within Iran who would tilt the nation towards a more uh, pro-Western direction against the Soviets. Obviously, the Soviet story in Central America overlays also the competition for Iran's affections in the Middle East. It should be noted that not everyone in the Reagan administration was on board with this idea of selling arms to the Iranians. In fact, it caused a huge split. The Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State, who didn't get along on anything else, were both opposed to the arms for hostages deal. Defense Secretary was named Casper Weinberger, and he wrote to the National Security Advisor when he heard this pitch about this arms for hostages swap. Weinberger wrote, quote, this is almost too absurd to comment on, like asking Qaddafi, then the leader of Libya, to Washington for a cozy chat. President Reagan ultimately attacked Libya after a nightclub bombing that was traced to the Libyan leader. Secretary of State Schultz was also opposed, noted that he just declared Iran a state sponsor of terrorism in January of 1984. So how could the United States possibly sell them arms after making that declaration? Another point that Lou Cannon makes in his book about Reagan is that Chief of Staff Don Regan indulged President Reagan rather than the previous Chief of Staff, Jim Baker, who would never have allowed this kind of arms for hostages swap to go on. Nevertheless, the sales went on. Reagan insisted. And here's how Cannon writes about it. And it gets back to that post-landslide idea. Cannon writes, quote, He, meaning Reagan, saw himself as the representative of the American people, and he was confident he knew the people's will. The entire adventure unraveled over a frantic week that began in November 18th of 1986, when a group of President Reagan's closest advisors worked to try to come up with an explanation for the arms sale 
to Iran as these stories started breaking in the fall of 1986, just to make sense of the panic and how acute it was. This is what President Reagan had said just a few days before the rubber bands and paper clips holding the whole thing together went pranging off in every direction, endangering the citizenry. The United States has not made concessions to those who hold our people captive in Lebanon, and we will not. The United States has not swapped boatloads of plane loads of American weapons for the return of American hostages, and we will not. So that was what the president said, and that's why everybody was scrambling around. He had denied something that they now knew and were finding in their internal investigation turned out to be the case. And so in this period in November of 1986, here's how the New York Times characterized it. These aides were trying to protect themselves and the president. And in doing so, administration officials deceived one another, Congress, and the public, the evidence shows. So there was a flurry of meetings between national security officials, uh, Attorney General Ed Meese and his staff, and of course, William Casey, the head of the CIA. It was during this period that North and his assistant, the uh, attractive, and that'll come in later, Fawn Hall, engaged in a shredorama, or what was termed later in the press a shredding party, destroying many of the documents related to this Iran-Contra affair one evening. And there were so many documents fed into the shredder that it jammed, which actually is probably not that big a deal since shredders, and particularly at that period, jammed if you just looked at them or said something mean about their mother. During the scramble to get the story straight, members of the Justice Department started finding things that were just too big to cover up, including a memo prepared for the president that mentioned diverting $12 million in profit from Iranian arms sales to the Contras. Why would there be a memo? And this was this this matters because this is the smoking gun. There were two questions really. What did Reagan know about the arms for hostages? And then what did he know about the diversion of money from the sales of those arms to the Contras? So why would there be a memo? Well, to initiate covert action, there has to be what's called an NSA finding, which is to say a a memo allowing the president to do the secret thing he's done and thereby go past Congress. This memo was a draft of the finding. In the end, the president did sign such a finding, though uh, it's not clear if he remembers it. And the question of whether the president authorized the money to go to the Contras is still a bit up in the air. But the head of the National Security Agency at the time, John Poindexter, who replaced Bud McFarlane, had such a memo and ended up destroying it, had the single copy of it that he kept in his safe. Anyway, at the end of this period, in the frantic period in November of 1986, the president announced on the 25th of November that he'd fired his national security advisor, Poindexter, and Oliver North, and that the case had been referred for criminal investigation. That afternoon of the 25th, Vaughn Hall, secretary to Oliver North, realized that there might have been some documents related to this business that had not been shredded, and so she smuggled them out of the White House in her boots and her clothing. Later that day on the 25th, the president called North and consoled him, saying, quote, this is going to make a great movie someday. So at the start of the trial, the big question is, what did Reagan know? When did he know it? And did Oliver North, A, lie to Congress, B, subvert Congress's will, and then C, try and cover up the whole darn thing? North was a highly decorated Vietnam veteran, a graduate of the Naval Academy. He had two Purple Hearts, a Bronze Star, a Silver Star. But he had a bit of a reputation as a fabulist, a huge ambition, but also... Eh, maybe he didn't always tell the truth so much when Assistant Attorney General Charles Cooper was asked if he would believe statements North had made under oath. He said, I would not. Lieutenant General Victor Krulak, who was a legendary Marine officer, said of North and the stories he told about his exploits in Vietnam, 
Quote, his combat exploits in Vietnam are romanticized, like the Sunday supplement tale of his valiant single-handed midnight forays across the DMZ to capture and bring back a North Vietnamese prisoner. It is an exciting story, but like many others, it did not happen. Stories were published that suggested North had ambitions that went beyond his adventures with respect to Iran and the Contras. There was a report that in 1984 he helped draft a plan to impose martial law in the United States in the event of an emergency, inspiring a protest from then-Attorney General William French Smith. The secret plan called for the suspension of the Constitution, turning control of the government over to a little-known agency, FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, which was little-known then. Rather well-known now after the Hurricane Katrina. And in this scheme, that would appoint military commanders to run the state and local governments. Martial law would have been declared in the event of a crisis such as a nuclear war, violent and widespread international dissent, or national opposition to U.S. military invasions abroad. In advance of the July hearing, Senator Patrick Moynihan of New York, the Democrat, was asked about North's penchant for embroidery, and he said, quote, he'd better not lie or we will put him in jail, said one former National Security Council colleague of North. Ali seems to be having trouble distinguishing between his fantasies and objective reality. George Will wrote that North, quote, is completely unable to tell what the truth is, period, closed quote. Before we get to the hearing, there are two frames that we want to point to that were put around North's testimony. The first frame was the wonderful All-American frame done in concert with Life magazine, the All-American magazine, in which Lieutenant Colonel North and his wife were portrayed as regular Americans. And the president, the other frame we want to offer is President Reagan pointing out that regular Americans didn't give a darn about the Iran-Contra affair. Before the hearing, Oliver North's wife spoke to Life magazine and said, I feel like they've got all the guns, and then there's us. She was talking about the committee that he was going before. She said, if you get the true story out, I don't know how people can't see the need to fight back when communism is spreading. His motives were pure. She continued, I felt that if everybody told the truth, it would be okay, but it's gotten so complicated. More from North's wife. The Bible says that you should pray for your enemies. That's what I should do. I can't say I always do. I get very angry at what people say sometimes. She speculated on whether her husband might go to jail. I don't think he anticipates that. I don't. But if that happens, it will still be all right. We're Christians. Accompanying the Life magazine story was a picture of North and his wife in what looked like their backyard. And the story had a quote from the man himself while he pushed his lawnmower. North's opponents at the time didn't recognize what was going on, but it was the first offering in testimony that was to be symbolic as well as substantive. The symbol was that of a man of duty whose wife and family followed traditional Christian practices, including a weekly Bible meeting at their house. This was an appeal to the silent majority in all possible symbolic ways. The president affected a familiar posture, arguing that the hearings and the questions of the Iran-Contra affair were merely a Washington obsession that he said no one cared about, quote, when you get a mile and a half away from the Potomac River. At first, Oliver North took the fifth when congressional investigators came calling in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee in December of 1986. He had reportedly asserted his right against self-incrimination 40 times. By July, he'd been given immunity, or a kind of immunity, and testified over the course of six days. 
The lines of spectators who wanted to peek at the smartly dressed mastermind at the heart of the Iran-Contra affair started to form at 5 a.m. At the start of the hearing, North, dressed in his military uniform, vowed, I came here to tell you the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But what, that, what does that mean, to tell the truth, when the truth you're telling is that you lied a lot to Congress and the Iranians and members of the administration, and when you've admitted that you shredded documents, which is itself a kind of lie? North said that he had lied, but that he was following orders and a higher purpose. He testified, By their very nature, covert operations or special activities are a lie. There's a great deceit, deception practiced in the conduct of covert operations. They are, in essence, a lie. The effort to conduct these covert operations was made in such a way that our adversaries would not have knowledge of them, or we could deny American association with it, or with association of this government with those activities. And that is not wrong. The phrase plausible deniability, I should say, became a household word. What Oliver North was saying about covert operations is both possibly true and highly clever. Let's take it from the clever point of view first. What his argument on about covert operations and the necessity of lying allows for is that anything that gets put under the cloak of covert can be excused. You can stuff any old bad behavior underneath that cloak and claim that it was being done in the interests of American national security. Got to be hush-hush, it's national security. And lying is a part of being hush-hush. So, if a lie is at the very center of an enterprise, then a lie in connection with that enterprise is not a bad thing. It's in furtherance of the enterprise. And by the way, the enterprise is in the service of America's national security. It's a patriotic lie. Here's how one newspaper put it at the time. This argument, this national security argument. He looked the part in his olive green uniform with its breast full of medals. And if you accepted his premise, you could swallow almost anything. His premise was that the nation was in a Cold War that required covert operations, which justified any amount of lying or deceiving to help the Nicaraguan Contras and protect the president of the United States. He not only admitted that he shredded evidence, but boasted about it. Always, he insisted, he acted with the knowledge of his superiors. So, shred some documents, go at it, that's apple pie, lied to Congress, motherhood. But the thing is, while this argument seems right, in the American system, presidents can't just go off and do things on their own. There is a system of shared powers, and Congress has to be notified. It can be notified in secret, but you've got to let them know. Anything that is too big for Congress to know about ought to be something Congress knows about. So let's not get too fancy here. What Oliver North was essentially saying was that the ends justify the means. Michael Lynch and David Boggan write uh, in a great book called The Spectacle of History, which analyzes North's testimony. They make a really interesting claim at this point, and I should note that The Spectacle of History is informing a lot of my thinking here. It is a great look at this historical event, and also this, this question about truth. If it was okay to lie in clandestine activities because you didn't want to let the enemy know what you were up to, what did that mean for the hearings themselves? At one point, North noted that the information being discussed in the hearing could possibly help the enemy. The Russians were watching, essentially. That was clever. He was putting his inquisitors in the aiding the enemy camp. So for the public watching, the inquisitors weren't just picking on a guy who had been doing his patriotic duty. The inquisitors were possibly endangering U.S. national security. 
That's why North, that kind of sloppiness was why North had tried to go around them in the first place. That kind of lack of knowledge of really what the stakes were and what was going on is why he tried to go around them in the first place. So if the Congress is in the same bucket as the enemies by asking these questions that the enemies can benefit from, then lying to Congress, either in the past or maybe in the present when he's testifying there in July, is maybe not a big deal. In fact, maybe it's positively American to lie to them. After all, lives were at risk. North defended his lies, saying, quote, lying does not come easy. But then he added that he had to weigh, quote, the difference between lives and lies. It's the right way to do it, to protect lives and the people engaged in it, he said. It being the covert operation. And lives are important, he said. In this frame, North could boast about his lies and his shredding, asked about memos that he sent his boss seeking presidential approval for the arms sales and the diversion of money to the Nicaraguan rebels. North said, I think I shredded most of that. Did I get them all? Later, when he confessed confusion about what he had shredded and what hadn't been shredded, he said, my memory's been shredded. This approach that North takes puts the inquiry on a different moral plane. The inquiry is lower, morally, relative to the patriotic plane where North said he got his authority to tell the lies that he told. So, he, And he's also essentially, in addition to putting it on a different moral plane, he's essentially appealing to a different moral grouping. The people who put patriotism above maintenance of separation of powers or truth-telling in the abstract. How much was patriotism an undercurrent of the hearing? Daniel Inouye, the Senate Democratic chairman who led the proceedings and who had lost an arm in the Second World War, donned his Distinguished Service Cross at the beginning of the hearings, nodding to the high symbolism and perhaps in preparation for an exchange or series of exchanges which would quickly turn from one about the facts to one in which participants' patriotism might be questioned. A cartoon at the time showed North and his lawyer uh, and... It was, But it was not North, it was just his uniform. And the lawyer says, Mr. North won't be testifying, but his uniform will be. Pointing out, of course, the symbolic power of the, the Marine uniform. Here's Secretary Cohen, later who would be Secretary of Defense, arguing about what was at stake. He's a Republican. And he's arguing about what was at stake in the Iran-Contra affair and lying to, to Congress. He's essentially trying to take back the legitimacy for the committee from the idea that lying to Congress was okay if it was in the service of noble goals. A democracy demands not only that the rights of the minority be protected, but that the rules of the majority be respected. And that's true even if you and I believe that the majority is wrong. We have to respect the rule of law until we can change the law itself, because otherwise the rule of law will be reduced to the law of rule. Both sides in this question invoked patriotism, the American people, and truth. They said it was on their side, not the other guy's side. It set the stage for a debate where there would be no uniformity in, in the view on those crucial questions. By the way, Marine officers have worn their uniforms to appear before Congress before, but some Marines at the time saw it as an attempt, obviously, to use the uniform as a shield. And going into the hearing, North had been a bit of an enigma. He'd been off the public stage for about six months since his firing. And once he started... Testifying, though, in front of that committee in July of 1987, he took command of the moment. Here's the lead of Maureen Dowd's piece in the New York Times. Through the smirks and winks and teary eyes, 
Through the Peck's bad boy grins and the earnest altar boy gazes, Oliver North seemed, as always, to be starring in his own movie. North declared that on the crucial question of diverting arms to the Contras, quote, I thought it was a neat idea, close quote, which gives you some sense of the mix of awe, shucks, and candor. North periodically produced declarations of duty and patriotism. He was asked by one of the lawyers on the majority side of the committee if his covert action was such a good idea, why did President Reagan fire North once it was made public? This lieutenant colonel is not going to challenge a decision of the commander-in-chief for whom I still work. And I am proud to work for that commander-in-chief. And if the commander-in-chief tells this lieutenant colonel to go stand in the corner and sit on his head, I will do so. Later in the testimony, North said, I never carried out a single act in which I did not have authority from my superiors. I'm not in the habit of questioning my superiors. I saluted smartly and charged up the hill. That's what lieutenant colonels are supposed to do. I have no problem with that. By talking in military terms, it was just one of the many ways in which North had changed the frame for the hearing. When acting as a member of the NSC, in fact, doing the things that were under discussion, he was a civilian in in regular civilian clothes, but that was not the role he was going to play at the hearing. The colonel, fit in his blue, with his blue eyes and his smart uniform, was a considerable contrast between, with the Democratic lawyers who were questioning him, John Neilds and Arthur Lyman who at the very least looked a little rumpled. Uh, The lawyer, Arthur Lehman, had a bit of an accent, which in threatening letters to him that were sent during the hearings caused people to focus on his Jewish heritage. And there was also in the letters apparently a lot of comparisons to the hair. North had the close-cropped military style, and Lehman, his hair was thinning, and Niels had long and hair that was sometimes combed to obscure his receding hairline. As for North's lawyer... His hair was looking good, sort of a salt and pepper number, and he became part of the story because he was uh, Brendan Sullivan, a lawyer from the famous Williams Conley law firm, Ed Williams, who had defended Jimmy Hoffa, tough as nails, and Brendan Sullivan was in that mold. Ed Williams looked like a guy who might have a tough fight with you in the, in the alley. Brendan Sullivan looks like that guy who's leading the fundraising drive at church, and you wonder where he finds the time. It must have been a Brooks Brothers suit, but as a college senior watching from a distance, which is what I was doing, the enduring image was of the two men whispering to each other in each other's ears before North gave an answer. And the reason they had to be so careful was that there was an independent counsel, Lawrence Walsh, looking into this Iran-Contra matter, and anything North said could cause him trouble in that inquiry, although he had immunity, which we'll get to later in our story. Sullivan was a pepper pot at the witness table, which was covered with a maroon tablecloth, which made it look like it might have had chafing dishes on it for Sunday brunch at the club a few days earlier. That's none of your business, he interjected at one point in the questioning. Get off his back. Get on with the questioning. At one point when Sullivan interjected and was reprimanded for doing so, because testimony in front of a congressional hearing, is supposed to be just the witness. The lawyer can give advice, but he's not supposed to pipe up. Anyway, he said, and Sullivan said in a famous quote, I'm not a potted plant. I'm here as the lawyer. That's my job. The point of all the outbursts was to portray North as a victim being unfairly picked on by the big mean committee, and to simply also sometimes just give his client a moment out of the hot seat. 
There were many exciting moments in the uh, testimony, but one of the highlights was when North was asked about a security system installed at his house that was paid for by the proceeds in the arms sale. The inference was, or the implication of the questions was, that North had lined his own pockets with the money that was uh, used from the oversale or the extra money left over from the sale of arms to the Iranians. And and that the, the security system that he had uh, accepted, the $16,000 security system, was part of this self-dealing. The issue of the security system was first broached immediately after a threat on my life by Abu Nidal. Abu Nidal is, as I'm sure you on the intelligence committees know, the principal foremost assassin in the world today. He is a brutal murderer. I want you to know that I'd be more than willing, and if anybody else is watching overseas, and I'm sure they are, I'll be glad to meet Abu Nidal on equal terms anywhere in the world. Okay? There's an even deal for him. But I am not willing to have my wife and my four children meet Abu Nidal or his organization on his terms. And I want you to know what was going through my mind. I was about to leave for Tehran. I had already been told by Director Casey that I should be prepared to take my own life. I had already been told that the government of the United States on an earlier proposal for a trip might even disavow the fact that I had gone on the trip on an earlier proposal. And we can come back to that at some time if you like. And so having, been asked, having asked for some type of U.S. government protection for my wife and children, and having been denied that, and perhaps for fully legitimate reasons. And if there is a law that prevents the protection of American government employees and their families from people like Abu Nidal, then gentlemen, please fix it. Because this kid won't be around much longer, as I'm sure you know. But there will be others, if they take activist steps to address the problem of terrorism, who will be threatened. There were also moments when things got strange. (laughs) I want to make it very clear, Oliver North said, that when you, meaning the committee, put up things like Park Lane hosiery, and you all snicker at it, and you know that I've got a beautiful secretary, and the good Lord gave her the gift of beauty, and that people snicker that Oliver Ollie North might have been doing a little hanky-panky with his secretary. He's talking about Fawn Hall there, and apparently in the in the financial records, which were being scrutinized because of this notion of uh, basically lining his pockets with money from the arms sales. That's what was at issue here, picking now up again with North. Ollie North has been loyal to his wife since the day he married her. And the fact is, I went to my best friend, meaning, meaning his wife, Betsy, and I asked her, did I ever go to Park Lane hosiery? And you know what she told me? Of course you did, you old buffoon. You went there to buy leotards for our two little girls. It was exchanges like this that built sympathy for North. Here's a Washington Post theater review of the testimony, which it called a bona fide certified total immersion television. It's almost impossible to tear oneself away. The Post covered it in the style pages, the way a television show would be covered. And in fact, that's what it was. Here's the Post. There they were, Mr. and Mrs. North, more than an all-American couple, staring down the armies of the day, the Joint House-Senate Committee investigating the Iran-Contra scandal. Nobody blinked, but North seemed once again to walk away with the laurels, even after facing the latest and supposedly most formidable challenger, Senate Counsel Arthur Lyman. Lyman was tough, Lyman was persistent, but Lyman really didn't leave much of a scratch on the little colonel. 
America loves a good David and Goliath story, and this one is a pip. Nobody has to wonder who's playing David either. An ABC poll taken after the first day of testimony said 58% of the 510 American surveys said they believed North was telling the truth, while 35% believed he was lying. 70% said North had done a good job defending himself. The Oliver North Legal Defense Fund was flooded with calls. People called it Ollie-mania. A USA Today poll found that 58,863 of the newspaper's readers agreed that North was, quote, honest, while only 1,756 said that he was, quote, a liar and, quote, ought to go to jail. Ollie for president. A sign read, Ollie, comma, Christians 2, period, Lions 0. Another placard said, I'm going to name my next boy Ollie. Thousands of telegrams came to Capitol Hill in support of him. Letters as well, doctors, lawyers, laborers. Give them hell, Ollie, wrote one. Lawmakers joined in the scorekeeping after the first few days of hearings. I really thought the colonel got the best end of that exchange. Committee member Dick Cheney, who would go on to be vice president, told Judy Woodruff on PBS. You can hear the tone in that Washington Post anonymously written piece. It's interesting. That was back when the Post used to write pieces that were just bylined to a Washington Post staffer. What you can hear in that Post piece a certain sense of contempt. And if one of the points of this whistle stop is that North's testimony was a cleaving moment in the national cultural political split between elites in Washington and the press corps and conservative America and its disdain for the way it's treated and looked at and looked down at by the by the press corps. Well, this Washington Post piece is kind of exhibit A in the kind of thing that a steady diet of that over time is what infuriated conservatives. The Post continued citing the, quote, fastidious, innocent glow of North's face. Here's the post. North delivers these gollywampers with a radiant sort of righteousness that is infectious, if slightly creepy. You want to believe like you want to believe Superman can fly, or that Tinkerbell won't croak from drinking the poison meant for Peter Pan. The immediacy of the television medium and the fact that the television networks made this appointment viewing and treated it as a stop-the-presses moment, accentuated the performance aspect of the hearing. On the one hand, this put North in a pickle. We all know what liars look like when they lie, and under the hot lights, he might wither and pop forward a lie or some other thing that might undo him. On the other hand, if he was the kind of fabulous that some said he was, then his testimony would provide one long string of performance moments for him to show that he was telling the truth. Here's how Lynch and Bogan put it. Quote, the very force of the speaker's conviction that his actions were right and his utterances are true, even when acknowledging lies, challenges the truth-finding engine of interrogation. What they mean there is essentially acting candid overcomes doubts people might have about your candor because you've been lying. North was shown repeatedly to have lied or misstated the facts on when and why he had done certain things. For example, he suggested the shredding was just a normal thing they did in covert work, but then was forced to admit that, in fact, he had picked up the pace rather considerably when he knew investigators were coming after him. Which, of course, is the difference between doing your job, maybe under covert things, and then obstruction. But when North was caught in an inconsistency, it was hard to see if you didn't know the whole story, if you didn't have the context. And what was much easier to see was the image of North that he put forward in his performance. Political scientist James David Barber put it at the time that North, quote, arouses the feeling of candor. Here's how the L.A. Times described his demeanor. Accusations of deceit leveled at North as often as not evoked from him the reaction of seeming bemusement or long-suffering patient with civilians who grasp little of the necessity or elegant complexity of covert operations. 
Thousands of angry letters denounced and even threatened his interrogators for harassing this American hero. According to Lynch and Bogan, again, initially the television networks received calls from soap opera viewers who were complaining that their favorite shows had been preempted. And then in the course of the testimony, viewers quickly came to appreciate the, the, life, the real drama that was playing in front of them and had displaced their favorite shows. The papers were full of stories that heralded the spike in, uh, in ratings. And of course, voices from the soap opera land had to be heard. Meredith Brown, editor-in-chief of Soap Opera Digest, reported that, that uh, there, w- there was no uproar because what could be more dramatic than Ollie, Nor- Ollie North, she asked. In a way, she added, Colonel North was, quote, the perfect character, unquote, for a soap opera. Quote, he's got the certain vulnerability, those nice big eyes, but all the time you watch him, you think, what are you really trying to say to me? What's really going on in this man's mind? The ratings caused a problem, argues Amy Freed, because to do well, the television networks had to appeal to traditional frames, heroes and dramatic stories. That would keep people glued to their seats, keep the ratings up. The conditions were primed for a hero narrative, regardless of what actually happened. The argument Freed makes is that the hearings and the response to North represent a moment in the changing landscape of public opinion. Americans didn't influence the subject of political dialogue. They reacted to a product. This is a larger evolution in the view of public opinion. And so she puts the pin down here as an important moment where... The reading of public opinion was not so much about what Americans had come to of their own conclusion, but it was a reading of their reaction to the marketing of the moment that drove things, not their independent evaluation of events. Washington Post thought it was such an entertaining spectacle. They interviewed the cabbies. Yep. The piece was titled Cab Fare, Tuning In With The Drivers. One uh, 31-year-old Nigerian was quoted as saying, I used to listen to music all day driving, but not since this is on for drivers who were waiting their turn in line for passengers outside of Lomfan Plaza, two of them from Haiti, one from Africa, they were all, uh, and another was from India, they were all leaning inside a car listening to to the hearing on the radio. The testimony ended with a dramatic closing by the Democratic Committee Chairman Daniel Inouye from Hawaii. He started his remarks, in the past week, I believe we participated in creating and developing a new American hero. He commended North for his service and then imagined that there would even be more people who might sign up for service because they saw North in his testimony. So Inoue wanted to be very clear that those people understand what North's duty was to obey the law even if his superiors told him otherwise. And then the voice you will hear interjecting at the end of this long riff is North's lawyer, Brendan Sullivan. And when the colonel put on his uniform and the bars of a second lieutenant, He was well aware that he was subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It's a special code of laws that apply to our men and women in uniform. It's a code that has been applicable to the conduct and activities of Colonel North throughout his military career and even at this moment. And that code makes it abundantly clear that orders of a superior officer must be obeyed by subordinate members, but it is lawful orders. The Uniform Code makes it abundantly clear that it must be the lawful orders of a superior officer. In fact, it says members of the military have an obligation to disobey unlawful orders. This principle 
was considered so important that we, we, the government of the United States, proposed that it be internationally applied in the Nuremberg trials. And so in the Nuremberg trials, we said that the fact that the defendant acted May I please uh, may register I, an objection? I, I find this offensive. I find you're engaging in a personal attack on Colonel North, and you're far removed from the issues in this case. To make reference to the Nuremberg trials, I find personally, professionally, distasteful. I can no longer sit here and listen to this. You will have to sit there if you want to listen. Mr. Chairman, please don't conclude these hearings on this unfair note. I have strong objections to many things in the hearings. And you up there speak about the listening to the American people. Why don't you listen to the American people and what they've said as a result of the last uh, week? There are 20,000 telegrams in our room outside the corridor here that came in this morning. The American people have are. spoken. And please stop this personal attack against Colonel North. I have sat here, listened to the Colonel without interrupting. I hope you will accord me the courtesy. There of is, saying my piece. Sir, you may, you may give speeches on the issues, it seems to me. You may ask questions, but you may not attack him personally. This has gone too far, in my opinion. I am not attacking him personally. That's the way I hear it, sir. It was an extraordinary move by Sullivan to take on the senator. More interesting for our purposes is how he used the telegrams in his argument. Law schmaw. It's what the people thought that mattered, Sullivan seemed to be arguing. And it was a pretty nimble play for a lawyer in a non-courtroom setting where, based on the trials I've covered, it's usually not about the emotions of the people, but the actual law and what has been proved. And this notion of how the, the public react is, um, is a part of this really thoughtful analysis of the hearings by Amy Freed and her work, uh, Muffled Echoes, Oliver North and the Politics of Public Opinion. In this work, she takes the hearing and the claims of hero, heroism as the, the departure point for an analysis of public opinion. And her argument is that most citizens didn't view North as heroic. But the media, North's lawyer Sullivan, in that interchange and in other times, and members of the committee spoke, when they spoke of public opinion, they were talking about the people who were reacting intensely, the people who were buying the Oliver North dolls or sending in the telegrams, and had them stand in for all public opinion. We see this in gun control debates where the gun owners are intensely interested and intensely powerful. But their views, which tend to control the narrative, are quite different than the broader views as represented in public opinion surveys that show people want greater gun control. We see this also today, and as many people mistake the intense support for President Trump as representative of the, of the entire nation's public opinion. And that's in President Trump's interest, too, to uh, basically claim that his most intense supporters represent actual America. And there are lots of ways in which North supporters viewed him in the way President Trump supporters see him. North supporters, when quoted, often express cynicism about the establishment and the press. Freed's point is a larger one, and that is, as she put it, quote, the translation of public opinion remains a political activity, not a rational process. In other words, don't scour the polls for metaphysical certainty. Use public opinion in any way you can to make your political point. She continues, it is less important politically what the public thinks than what the media and political elites believe the public thinks. And that's what Sullivan was playing on at the end of this exchange with Inouye. 
In the end, the Senate, the committee, the House, the Joint House and Senate Committee investigating the Iran-Contra deal, uh, rela- released two reports: a majority and minority report. The majority report was signed by all the Democrats and three of the five Senate Republicans. The minority report was signed by all the House Republicans and two of the five. Senate Republicans. The majority report argued that North and his boss, National Security Advisor John Poindexter, had treated Congress as a nuisance, restricting their access to information about policy matters and making it impossible for them to check the executive branch, which was Congress's job. Still is, it turns out. I didn't want to show Congress a single word on this whole thing, Oliver North said. Members of Congress were not given information when they asked for it, and when they were, and they were not given the information they were supposed to get through established systems of information sharing, even for covert activities. Said the final report, the scheme taken as a whole to raise money to conduct a secret contra support capacity operating as an appendage to the national security staff violated cardinal principles of the Constitution. The minority report rejected most of what the majority had written and said that what had happened was a mistake, but quote, mistakes in judgment and nothing more. North was convicted on three felony accounts of of obstructing Congress, destroying documents, and accepting an illegal gratuity. The documents charge was then reversed because the judge gave a bad instruction. The other two counts were set aside by the court and subsequently dismissed after prosecutors decided that they were unable to prove that witnesses had not been influenced by North's congressional testimony for which he had been given immunity. In other words, immunity meant Anything he said there couldn't be used in the criminal proceedings. And so, because you couldn't untangle the spaghetti, he could not be prosecuted. Any discussion of official lying in history obviously bears on the veracity of an existing administration, in this case, the Trump administration, where we've seen the president say things for which he has no evidence and which he has been directly refuted by those in a position to know. Notably, we're talking mostly about the Trump's claim that Trump Tower was wiretapped by President Obama and the president's claim about uh, three to five million people voting illegally in the last election. And not to mention, of course, there's the insistence that President Obama wasn't born in the United States, that Ted Cruz's father was part of the plot to kill JFK. And uh, we've also seen administration officials prevaricate, most notably National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, when talking about what President Trump had told the Russians in the Oval Office, and Vice President Mike Pence, who mischaracterized the reasons President Trump fired FBI Director James Comey. So where do we draw any of the parallels between that kind of uh, misinformation and what Oliver North was doing? Well, the parallels that don't exist come first to mind for me, which is that the current charges, uh, or the current challenges, I should say, to truth-telling is that there's no real higher purpose for the misinformation the way there was in the North case. Uh, At least in North's case, there were those two key pillars of why he was dissembling. A desire to release the American hostages held in Lebanon and also to fight communism. Those were, maybe it was wrong for him to do everything he did, but those were the high-minded reasons why you might be able to make a case for not telling the truth, at least in certain circumstances. But what we do see in the current situation that does seem to have a parallel is this naming of the enemy in order to excuse the behavior that would otherwise be outside the norm. President Trump has declared the press the enemy, and his chief of staff has pointed out that Americans should consider the press the enemy when thinking about the news. And that seeks not just to delegitimize the press, but to make it the enemy so that anything goes in fighting the enemy, just like you can do anything if you're trying to fight communism. It gives you more room to maneuver. Again, what's missing, though, in this case, is the key moral component that North and President Reagan availed themselves of, the idea that they were doing this to free the hostages. 
the tribal response that came into play in the North hearings, of course, is still at play. If a person seeks to not tell the truth, can successfully get the audience on his side by demonizing the opposition, then he performs a nice little jujitsu. So in which he uses the power of the Inquisitor to solidify his position. The Inquisitor is passionate, diligent, pointed, all in the service of what the Inquisitor thinks is a mighty goal of finding out the truth, but which the audience, who has been flipped by the prevaricator, sees all of this as enemy behavior. So the dissembler can then tell even greater untruths because the shock and outrage that they elicit from the Inquisitor becomes not proof of the size of the lie of the dissembler, but proof of how unhinged, deranged, and underhanded the behavior of the Inquisitor is. That kind of jujitsu took place and benefited North, and we see it in our current context. As for Oliver North, he was not able to transfer his popularity into a durable political force. In 1994, he ran for Senate and lost in a year that was historic for its Republican gains. After North won the Republican nomination that year, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, along with John Poindexter and the senior senator from Virginia, John Warner, all spoke out against him. By that time, 53% of those polled believed that North's behavior in the Iran-Contra affair was morally wrong. Later, North tried to use his support in the conservative world to stop Republican Senator John Warner from winning re-election. He was unsuccessful. But nevertheless, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North turned his grueling six days of ten, uh, testimony into a reversal of image on par or perhaps exceeding the success of Richard Nixon's famous checker speech when he was vice president. And obviously, he built a platform for a successful career as a hero in the modern partisan age. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our Whistle Stop crackerjack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, who really did yeoman's work this week, not only scouring the library for books, but then photocopying till he went blind. And thanks to Izzy Road, who helped me chop through the newspaper clippings again this time. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster at panoply.fm. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson.